Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9 this morning. We are back in Romans 9, and last week we started in on the substantive part of this chapter and looked at verses 6 down to 13, and this morning we're going to pick back up at verse 14 and read down to verse 23, Romans 9, 14 to 23. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find that on page 945, and as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have a copy of scripture open, reading along with me, and I'm going to begin at verse 6 for the sake of context, and then read down to verse 23, Romans 9, 6 to 23. And Before we do, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless this very important and very challenging and difficult portion of his word this morning. Lord, we rejoice that you are a sovereign God in all of your perfections, that you rule over heaven and earth, that you do according to your will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can say to you, what are you doing? We thank you that you are God who has said, I create light and I create darkness, I create good and I create evil. We thank you that you are a God of sovereign justice, that you are a God of a sovereign will, and that you are a God who is absolutely sovereign in your purposes, in redemption, and in bringing your name, glory, and in showing your attributes. And so, Father, we pray that we would know these things better. We pray that you would make us submissive and humble under your word, that you would crush our pride, that you would build us up in Christ, that you would press us forward in holiness. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make us to hear your voice as of the good shepherd, as your word is read and preached. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Romans 9, beginning in verse 6, the Apostle Paul there asking the question, why were most of Old Covenant Israel not redeemed? And he says, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And now our text, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, and I prefer the old translation, will the 
The clay say to the potter, why have you made me like this? I'm sorry, there it is, verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay? Well, the thing formed, say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I can do no better as I come to this portion of scripture than read to you what John Piper said to his congregation as he went deeper and deeper into these verses, some of the most challenging and difficult verses in scripture. And this is what he said One of the great advantages of being a pastor and laboring to understand God's word and exalt over it in preaching is that I must stand before people week after week whose children have died, or worse, are spiritually dead, whose spouses are critically ill or worse, spiritually hard, whose health is failing, whose jobs are in jeopardy, whose finances are strapped, who battle depression or love someone who does, who know from experience that the world, the real world where they live, is shot through with sin and suffering and futility. I say it is a great advantage to me as a pastor who is called to understand and teach and exalt over the word of God to do it in this context of life. It is an advantage because I can't afford to play any academic games here. I can't endlessly suspend judgment on crucial things. I can't be neutral about great realities that matter in people's lives. There's too much at stake every week for us to entertain ourselves with trivialities or platitudes. Life is hard, and you don't come here to hear me speculate or give my opinion and offer pep talks to divert your attention from your problems. And it's an advantage because in this context of real live people of all kinds in real pain every week, the big truths of the Bible either help or they don't. And a pastor hears about it. It's a great blessing to me to do theology in the public context of a covenant community of suffering people. The problem of pain, the problem of evil, and the truth of God's sovereignty are never far away. I read that to you because I could not say anything better than that to you as we come to Romans 9. These are verses I've told you that people have either come to love and have driven them to worship the sovereign God of the universe, or they have driven away hard-hearted unbelievers like Pharaoh, and they have hardened their hearts at these truths. Um, When I was 23 years old, just a month or so before I was converted, knowing this chapter inside and out, knowing it was God's word, knowing it was true, knowing intellectually it was true, and yet not knowing Jesus Christ, I remember thinking to myself, and I want, I want you to look at verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And I thought, am I a vessel of wrath? Did God prepare me for destruction? I knew that I was running in my heart as far away from him as I could. I didn't love him. I didn't delight in him. I didn't rejoice in him. I wasn't trusting him. And I thought, did God create me to be a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction? And that's what drove me to Jesus Christ. And whatever response you may have in whatever area of life you are in today, whatever response you have to this, the right response should be to drive you to Jesus Christ. 
It should drive you to worship God. It should not drive you to speculate. If it makes you angry, then there's something wrong with your heart. If you don't like this God, then you don't like the true and living God. Because there is one God, and he is absolutely sovereign over everything. He is sovereign in his justice. He is sovereign in his will. And he is sovereign in his purposes. And that's what we're going to see this morning, those three things as we look at verses 14 to 23. We're going to see the sovereignty of God in his justice first. We're going to then see the sovereignty of God in his will. And then finally, we're going to see the sovereignty of God in his purposes. Well, we've already stepped into this chapter and we've talked about the the solution to why some believe and some don't is because God chose some for salvation and others he passes by sovereignly. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated before the twins did anything good or bad. God said that to their parents before they were even born. Before they were born, God said to their parents, the older is going to serve the younger. I have loved Jacob and I will hate Esau and that is my eternal purpose and will. And now the question comes and the difficult question that people that hate this love to say is, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. That's not fair for God to save one and not another. It's not fair for salvation to be all up to God. It's not fair that God doesn't give salvation to everybody. How is God just? And in the words of Eric Alexander, my beloved, my beloved congregation, you do not want fair. You do not want fair. You do not want to get what you deserve from the hand of an infinitely holy God. And the purpose of this chapter is to drive us to, to our knees and to say, how could he love me? How, could, how he, could he love me? I love this. Eric Alexander says, the greatest mystery of the universe to me is not some astrophysical problem. Please listen to me. The greatest mystery of the universe, contrary to what everybody tells you on the Discovery Channel, on every television channel on every news channel is not some astrophysical problem. The greatest mystery of the universe to me is that an eternally holy God before the foundation of the world would set his love upon me and choose me in in Christ to be his child. That's the greatest mystery in the world. Why was I made to hear his voice? Because sitting there at 23 years old, wondering if God had made me to be a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction, I was acknowledging I did not deserve the love of God. I was acknowledging in some sense on my way to conversion that I did not deserve to be loved by God. And at ground zero of Christianity, none of us deserve salvation. I'm going to say that again. At ground zero of Christianity, none of us deserve salvation. Now, Paul knows that he has educated opponents. He has unbelieving Jewish opponents who are going to try to get out there in front of him, Paul. And I I think this is one of the beautiful things about Romans. He's always getting out there. He's always thinking, okay, I know that so-and-so is not going to like this, so let me just go out there, get in front of them, ask the question, raise the objection, answer it for them, and then we can move on. And then there's another and another and another. You're going to see two objections, both having to do with the justice of God. How is it just for God to save one and not another? And notice what Paul says in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And I don't like the ESV here by no means. It really ought to be God forbid. God forbid that there's injustice on God's part. Notice verse 15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, 
This is difficult, what I'm about to say. God is all of his attributes. He is love. He is wisdom. He is justice. He is wrath. He is mercy. He is grace. He is all of his attributes. He doesn't have those things. That's who he is. He is infinite in those attributes. And he is full of goodness. And he always shows his goodness. Jesus tells us this, that even on the wicked and the righteous, he makes his sun to shine. He sends his rain on the just and the unjust. Everybody, no matter who they are, gets a little taste of God's goodness in this world. I remember having a friend as a young Christian, and she said to me, you know, one of the things that I marvel at the most is that in a world so fallen and in a world of people that are totally depraved, fallen in Adam, dead in sins and trespasses, a world of cancer and sickness and disease and pestilence and war and rape and every other kind of hardship that food can taste so good, and that that is a little tiny touch of God's goodness that he spreads over a world that doesn't deserve that. He always shows his goodness. And he's always just. He's just in whatever he does. Whatever God does is just because God does it. And yet he doesn't show his grace and mercy to everyone. He always shows grace and mercy, but he doesn't show it to everyone. This is exactly what Paul's teaching in Romans 9. He's saying God is always just, but he doesn't show everyone grace and mercy. And so you've got to be able to hold those together and say God is just. God would have been just if he didn't show grace and mercy to anyone. He would have been just if he gave everyone their just deserve. He would be just if he wiped everybody out, sent everybody to hell forever. Praise God he doesn't do that because God would be just to do that. And that's what Paul's saying. Is there injustice on God's part? God forbid. And then notice the refrain. God says to Moses in Exodus 33, Moses goes to God and he says, Lord, make me to know your grace and and lead these people of yours up with me because how will we know that you're with us if you don't go with us and show me your glory? And this is God's response. I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. I will be compassionate to whom I will be compassionate. And so underneath that level of God is always just, is God's always exercising his sovereign will and whatever he decides is just because he decides it. Now that is not meant to be speculation so you can get in your car and go home and think about, was God really like that? That's, that's not why that's in the Bible. That's in the Bible so you fall down and you worship that God. And if you want to see an example of how to respond to that, you go back to Exodus 33 and you see how Moses, to whom that is first said directly from God, how he responds. You go to the Gospels where you hear Jesus say, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And you see 20,000 people turn away and you see Simon Peter say, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. That's how to respond to that. The way to respond to this is, Lord, to whom shall we go? Show me your glory. Make me know your grace. Have mercy on me. Not one person who cries out in the gospel, have mercy on me, doesn't receive that mercy. And behind receiving that mercy is God is just in giving that mercy to whomever he wants to give it to. 
Secondly, he is sovereign in his will. You know, everyone is always talking about, what about, what about man's free will? I, I can't tell you how many times in my short life I have heard people say, what about man's free will? And not once have I heard somebody say, what about God's free will? I want to ask you, have you ever asked that question? Have you ever said, what about God's free will? Because that's what Romans 9 is teaching. Romans 9 is teaching, and I think this is wonderful. Again, Eric Alexander, what the Bible emphasizes and underlines and insists upon through though everything in the universe perish is God's free will. So your free will is not first and foremost. God's free will is. If you're that being of which there is none greater and you made the heavens and the earth and you spoke all things into existence, your will matters supremely. And you get to do whatever you want with it. He's not a tyrant. He says in the Bible that the Lord does not desire the death of the wicked. He calls wicked men and women everywhere to repent and to come to Christ. He even gave... Pharaoh opportunities to repent, though his ordination was the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. There is that symbiosis between God's sovereignty and our responsibility, and there's mystery, and we're never going to figure it all out, but the Bible teaches both. But what the Bible does teach, and we can say this definitively, is that God's will matters more than your will. That's what Romans 9 teaches. God's will matters more than your will, more than my will. This is why Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will be done. Not what about my free will? What about my decision, God? I love when God finally deals with Nebuchadnezzar and he has him eating grass. Um, and, And you're supposed to have that response when you think about that. God humbles. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's this great entrepreneurial warlord king, and God turns him into a beast and says, you're going to eat grass. And when he finally repents, he says uh, something to the extent that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and he does whatever he wants in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and who can say to him, what are you doing? And that's what Romans 9 is saying about salvation, and God says that. Notice the juxtaposition. There's this really interesting paralleling. Notice notice verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. So the inner desire and then the outer action. It doesn't depend on your or my desire. Nobody, Nobody wakes up and says, I desire to be a Christian, that's, it's up to me, and I'm making that decision. I'm desiring to be a Christian. It's not, it's not according to man's will or exertion. It's not of him who wills or runs, but of God who has mercy. So behind the human will and trusting Jesus is the sovereign will of God. And then notice the juxtaposition. It's not of human will, verse 16. And then notice this. Notice verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, Paul's just taken this beyond election. He's already told us that God chooses some. Now he goes to reprobation. Paul actually says, let's be consistent. Let's be consistent. Not only a lot of people don't like the doctrine of election. Well, brace yourself. Paul's saying, 
consistently, if we're going to be consistent, if God has absolute free will, if God does whatever he wants to do with everyone and whomever he wants to, especially in the realm of salvation, he has mercy on whomever he wills. And then Paul deduces he hardens whomever he wills. Now, Paul in all this is going where? Is Paul sitting back as a great philosophical autonomous thinker thinking, you know what? I figured out how to structure reality and a lot of people are going to hate me for it for the next couple centuries, but I'm going to tell them that I think this is what God's like. No, Paul goes back to the Old Testament. Paul goes back to the scripture time and time and time again. In fact, Paul goes to what God says to Moses. I will have mercy on whomever I will. God said that. Paul didn't say that. None of the prophets said that. God said that. Paul is going back to the scriptures and he's unpacking the scriptures for us. And notice that when he introduces the subject of God being sovereign and willing the hardening of someone, he then asks that second question, dealing with God's sovereign will. Notice verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Okay, now this is difficult. What Paul is saying is someone may give assent to this and they say, okay, Paul, you're saying God decides who's going to be saved, who perishes. He has mercy on some. He hardens others. So then how can God, how can man be responsible? How can man be responsible if they they can't resist his will? You're telling me whatever God wants to do is going to be done. That's what I love about this chapter. I don't want to sound heartless, but if you don't like this, it doesn't matter. I, I have to say that. It doesn't matter. It's God's word. And it's going to stand forever. And it doesn't change the fact that he's sovereign in his will. And it doesn't, nothing, no emotion I may have is going to change the fact that what God wills is going to be done. And so someone could say, well, then if God wills that, how can men be responsible? And and what Paul does is he looks back at the Exodus account of Moses and Pharaoh. And you'll know it well as you read through that account. God is bringing his people out and back and forth. God hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart and he would not let the children of Israel go. And you see how God's will in the purpose, we'll get to in a minute with Pharaoh, is then worked out in Pharaoh's responsible actions. Pharaoh wasn't not hardening his heart. Pharaoh was hardening his heart. You know, there's an interesting parallel here back in Romans chapter 1 where we're actually told in verse 24 about all men, they don't like the knowledge of God, they hate the knowledge of God, they don't want the knowledge of God. That's the natural response. I don't love the God who made me. I want to change his glory for the glory of animals and four-footed. I want to worship creation. I want to worship other people. I want, to, I want to worship myself. I want to worship created things. I want to make idols for myself. And this is what Paul tells us in Romans 1. Listen carefully. Verse 24. God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. There's the first time. God gave them up. That was a judicial hardening. I don't know if you remember, I, I quoted Gerhardus Voss at this point 
on saying that there is a scriptural law of sin being punished by irretrievable abandonment to sin. Back in Romans 1, that there's a scriptural law that one of the ways God punishes disobedience is to give you over to more of it, to give especially unbelievers. God gave them over, Romans 1, 24. Romans 1, 26, God gave them up because they didn't like to retain knowledge. God gave them up to vile passions. And then in verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And so even though Paul is telling us that God in his eternal decree, decreed to raise Pharaoh up to harden his heart, to make his power known, which we'll talk about, in the outworking of that, as you read the scriptures, you're seeing that God is giving Pharaoh over to what Pharaoh wants. Pharaoh wants a hard heart. Pharaoh didn't want repentance. Esau wanted rebellion. Their lives were marked by a turning away from God, and God hardened them. Now, yes, we're saying in the councils of eternity, God's decree was behind that, but in time, they were purposefully, consciously, here we're going to talk about man's will. So now we'll go back to man's will. What about my will? They were willing disobedience. Pharaoh was willfully refusing to let the Israelites go. And so that means whoever perishes, in one real sense, puts themselves in hell. They refuse to repent and believe the gospel. They refuse to turn to God. Their hearts are hardened. God gives them over. It is a judicial hardening in that process. So this is not some abstract thing that we just want to think about way back here, detached from the rest of the scriptures. We want to talk about how that works out in time. Nevertheless, Paul's point is God's will is sovereign. And you know what? I take great comfort in that. I take great comfort that we have a God who is all-powerful because that means that when my heart is grieved for the salvation of my children— and my heart is grieved for the salvation of my uncle, and my heart is burdened for the salvation of loved ones that I don't want to see perish, I know that the sovereign God is the only one that can change their hearts, and that it's not up to them, and it's not up to me, and I can cry out to him day and night that he would do that, and that he is absolutely sovereign over that. I've actually had people tell me when I've witnessed to them, I'll never believe in Jesus Christ, to which I've said to them, oh, if God changes your heart and brings you to repentance, you absolutely will. Who has resisted his will? If God wills to have mercy on someone, you know, who, who was the last person in the world? Who was the last person in the world besides you and me who should have believed in Jesus Christ? It was the man writing this. It was the man writing this. He was the last person in the world. He didn't come down an aisle and pray a prayer. He didn't give his life over to Jesus. Jesus stopped him on the Damascus road. God said, I am going to have mercy on Saul of Tarsus. I am going to give him a new heart. I'm going to make him a missionary to the Gentiles. I am going to turn the world upside down through him. Who better than Paul to get this? Who better than the man who spent all of his will and effort trying to tear apart the church to say, God has mercy on whom he will, and he hardens whom he will. And he gives that example from Pharaoh, and then Paul, while it does sound harsh to many, says in verse 20, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will the thing formed say to the thing that formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? You know, 
there's lots of theology that we could get into. Is that a fallen lump? Does God ordain it to be a fallen lump of clay and then make one for honor and dishonor? And I know you don't even want to go there. That's fine. Not sure that was even in Paul's mind. But any of you who have ever done pottery, and I was a member of a potter's guild when I was about 19 years old, I was terrible. I mean, every vessel I made was a vessel of dishonor. It was, I couldn't even get halfway on making that thing straight. But if any of you have ever done, and you know what I did? As soon as that, as soon as, as soon as that was messed up, I, I crumbled that down, I balled it up, and I tried again, then I packed it up and went home. Now, I don't say that to make light of it, but the potter has complete power over the clay. The potter has the power over the clay. God has power by his sovereign will over the lives of men and women. Now, I can't look out and say, vessel of wrath, vessel of honor, vessel of wrath, vessel of mercy. I can't do that with anybody. You can't do that. God knows that. That's the secret. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. You know, Calvin, John Calvin has this great quote where he is um, reflecting on these things right here, and he, and he says something along the lines of where God stops teaching is where we need to stop asking questions. That's about it. Where God stops teaching is where we need to stop asking questions. Now, thirdly and finally, I want us to consider the purpose, and this is a big subject, and it's not an easy one, but God does go further, and he does tell us why he does this. God does have a sovereign purpose in why he has mercy on some and not on others. Notice what Paul says in verse 20, 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Here's why God does what he does. Everybody wants to know, why would God ordain the fall? Why would God ordain a fallen world with so much pain and hurt? Why would God, you you use the word allow, I'll use the word ordain, it's a better word. Why does he ordain sin and suffering and evil? Why does God do that? Give me the answer why, and Paul says, fine, here's the answer. God wants to show off his attributes. God wants to show off his attributes. Now, God doesn't need you, and he doesn't need me. He lacks nothing. He didn't need the world he created. By the way, there's a very distinctively Protestant theology I'm teaching you. He doesn't need anything. He lacks nothing. He decided out of his fullness to create the world. And he ordained that that world would fall and that there would be vessels of wrath who forever would fall under his just, righteous indignation because God wants to show that he's a just judge. And God the Father is not going to show off his wrath in the Godhead with the Son and the Holy Spirit who are perfect in infinite perfection. He's, he's, he, there's no sin in the Godhead. Could he have only ordained angels to fall and then poured out his wrath on angels? Absolutely. But he chose to do what he did. This is what we're told. God desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known. He wants you to know that he is a just and holy God. He wants you to know that he is a righteous judge. You know, I was just watching about the Casey Anthony case three years later now. Hard to believe, three years. And the news channels, they still can't believe she got off. Suddenly their sense of justice returns. 
Everybody's sense of justice goes out the window until somebody kills their daughter. There's something deeply ingrained within us that knows this is right, that knows that, that God has to be a just and holy God. And God, in the Old Testament, oftentimes, either when he redeemed his people or he sent judgments, he said, I'm doing this so that you will know that I am the Lord, so that you will see my power, so that you will know my name, so that you will see what kind of God I am. That's a very important thing. And and I want to say this this morning. I understand that some of you may hate this. And again, it doesn't change the fact that it's true and that that's who God is. And that is the true and the living God over all the earth. And nothing will ever change that. And God has willed sovereignly to do all that he does. He ordained Pharaoh. Notice this. Notice verse 17. He even tells Pharaoh. He even tells Pharaoh that he created Pharaoh in order that he might make his power known. So God raised Pharaoh up created him, set him over Egypt, had him oppress his people so that God could pour his plagues out, conquer Pharaoh, and deliver his people. God told Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this purpose, that my power may be known. And you know what happened from that? Rahab the harlot heard that. Rahab the harlot, way over in another land, heard what God did to Pharaoh and believed the gospel and was saved. So God was working wrath and mercy at the same time. God wants to show his power and his wrath. He endures vessels of wrath. God wants to show off that he's merciful and gracious. He saves you and me. That's what God does. And I, at the end of the day, I don't get to say anything. I get to repent of my sins. There are two or three things that we should take away from this. Four, actually. One We should learn to worship and love God for who he is in his sovereign justice, according to his sovereign will, and for his sovereign purposes. We should worship him. We should praise him. We should be thankful that he is the infinitely perfect God that he is. Number two, we should be humbled that he would have mercy on us, that he would will to have mercy in you, that he would make you desire to trust in his son, Jesus Christ. How do you know if God's had mercy on you? Are you trusting Jesus? Are you looking in faith to the crucified son of God for the forgiveness of your sins and for redemption? If you are, God has said, I will have mercy on this one. That's how you know that behind your trusting is his sovereign will. Charles Spurgeon used to say, you walk through the gate of whosoever will, you walk through that gate, but when you turn around and you've come to Christ, you look back and it says chosen from all eternity on the other side of the gate. God has said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It should humble us. There should be no room for pride. God said to Israel, I didn't choose you because you were greater, but because you were the least of all the nations on the earth. Number three, it should propel us in exertion toward holiness. Everywhere in the scriptures, the Bible says that it links God choosing a people in Christ with pursuing holiness. That's what you've been chosen for, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So God has chosen you that you might trust his son, that you might pursue a life of godliness. Election and God sovereignly having mercy should drive you forward 
in holiness. And then fourth, and, and perhaps most important to us, this should cause us to be on our knees, crying out to God to save all those around us who are lost. Because they can't save themselves and you can't save them. And so when you have a sovereign God who can save people, you have a confidence you can go to him and say, Lord, you and you alone can change this person's heart. And you know what I've noticed in my short life? The times that I've prayed fervently from the heart to God according to his sovereignty, in almost every case I've seen him answer those prayers in different ways, favorably. Are you confident of that? Is the God that you worship the God of Romans 9? He is the least politically correct God you'll ever hear about. But he's the God of the scriptures. He's the God who made the heavens and the earth. He's the God who's sovereign in justice, in all his actions, in all his purposes. And at the end of the day, God is going to get glory. It's not about your glory and my glory. It's about him getting glory. Let him who hears what the Spirit says to the church. Let him hear with understanding and with faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are very deep and weighty things, and we wrestle with them, and some here may not like them, and we pray that you would open the eyes of the heart and open the understanding to see the glories and the riches and the beauty of your sovereignty and your power and your wisdom and your justice, and that you our God who has mercy on whom you will and and that you harden whom you will. And Lord, we pray that this would cause us to be better worshipers and that it would humble us and that it would drive us forward in trusting your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have made us vessels of mercy prepared for glory. We thank you that for all eternity you will break mercy open on our heads. We thank you that your mercy endures forever and that you have freely by your grace shown it to us. We pray that you would have mercy on those around us who do not know you. We pray that you would be saving our loved ones and our children and our neighbors and our co-workers and people in this community that you would send redemption all through Richmond Hill. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.